0: Oh, stop a car yet had her Namaha Vasudeva Devam kan sa devaki paramanandam krishnam vande jagat gurum So in the last class, we were studying the ninth sloka of the third chapter of Srimad Bhagavad Gita. So here the real karma yoga, the concept of karma yoga starts in the Bhagavad Gita from this ninth sloka, where we find that that we have the general notion that all the work increases our bondage. Out of desire, we are doing some work, and that work creates sanskara, and that sanskara again leads to work. And this cycle goes on. As has been described by Shankaracharya, this, the cause of the transmigration of the jiva is this chakra, is this cycle of avidya karma. Avidya means ignorance. The moment the consciousness, the non-dual consciousness gets reflected in the psychophysical existence, and it starts itself identifying with the reflection. It thinks itself to be the reflection. And thus it gets identified with the psychophysical existence then this, this, this is the thing which enters in the ignorance. I'm not aware of my real nature. I am taking my reflection to be the real nature and I get attached to the body-mind complex. And now anything which happens to this body-mind complex, I think it happens to me. Actually, I'm the witness, eternal witness. Nothing can affect me. But as I'm identified with the body-mind complex, Anything which happens to the body, I think it happens to me. So this results in this ignorance, a jnana. All the ignorance now results in karma, the desire. That how from ignorance the desire come? That I feel myself limited. I'm just a limited psychophysical existence for its sustenance, for the sustenance of the body, which is me, as I've identified with it, I have to constantly take recourse to all the resources, which is not me. That's outside in the universe. The entire universe outside is there for me to recourse, to take, just to proceed towards it, to grab it and to make it my own, whether it be food, or in my other positions or my relations. Everything is something which is apart from me. The wealth, my relations, my position, which is everything is apart from me, that I have to acquire. The moment that segregation comes, that I and not me. So for me to sustain the thing which is not me has to be made my own. So this speaks of the desire. I want this, I want that. And this desire, the moment we take recourse to that desire, it forms a samskara. That for the first time, I'm enjoying a delicacy. It's not that I forget about it. The act itself will be creating a samskara. It there, it remains in my subconscious mind as the latent impression as a samskara. And then, during the course of time, uh, when I am, again, most probably I forgot about it, but it's there. It's not, it is not deleted. It is there in my mind. Again, the favorable circumstances come. If I somehow go to a restaurant and open a menu book and I just see the name of that particular dish, which I do, do relish a few months back, suddenly the memory comes back. The samskara is revived back as memory. Oh, so many innumerable samskaras are there in my mind. All of them don't manifest just at a time. But as per the favorable circumstances, these all latent impressions are finding expression through my mind. And the moment it again finds expression, it comes back as memory, then I am again that motivated for that action. Oh, let me order this food. Let me have it. So this speaks of avidya, karma, karma. And this goes on, not only for one life, life after life. So naturally, we feel that the moment we resort to action, it is going to intensify my bondage. So what's the way out? Can I stop all action? That also we found, Bhagavan has described in the previous locus that in no way we can stop the action. Even if we don't want our body, as long as it is alive, is constantly acting. Heart is beating, you're breathing, Sharira Yatra Pichate Karma. That even for the Sharira Yatra, for the sustenance of the body, for the maintenance of the body, the karma has to go on. So I cannot stop it. Then what's the way out? So the way out is to take out the desire factor. To give an example, that when the fan is revolving, what's the way I can stop the fan? Will anyone go and try to catch hold of the blades and try to stop the fan? No one will do that. They know that I will injure myself. I will will damage the fan. The coils will get burnt off. I cannot stop the fan that way. What I have to do, I simply have to switch off the fan. When I switch off, the fan doesn't stop immediately. It still goes on revolving for some time because of its past momentum to stop ultimately. But the same thing that it is a desire which is a switch which is impelling me for action. I cannot stop it immediately. Just the way I cannot hold the blade of the fan and stop it immediately, it damages me, it damages the fan. Similarly, trying to forcefully stop action is damaging. It can affect my psyche, it can affect my physical health, and it uh, also stops the abhuda, That. Through me, whatever good has to be done for the world, that also I stop. I neither am helpful for the world, nor I am beneficial for myself. So that's not the way. It's just by trying to action immediately. Sri Ramakrishna used to say that when you have a scab over a wound, if you try to forcefully remove that scab, the wound won't be healed. It will be lacerated. The wound will intensify. It will lacerate. You have to allow the scap to fall off automatically. That's the process of healing. So renunciation should come spontaneously. You cannot force renunciation. It is damaging. So how to spontaneously bring that renunciation? Let the actions go on. Let me try to take out that desire, which is a switch, which is the driving factor behind all my actions. If I can do all my actions without any desire, the actions will continue because of the past momentum, because of my past samskaras, the actions will go on. I cannot stop it immediately. But if I take away that desire factor, which is the driving factor behind all my actions, gradually that my actions will lose its momentum and it will take me to that ultimate realization, ultimate spiritual illumination. So how to take away the desire factor? It's not easy. If I just say that don't desire, it's not easy. So Bhagawan throughout the Gita will be giving certain uh, paradigms. He will open up certain portals for us through which if we can change our awareness, if we can alter our awareness, we can take a recourse to a different type of awareness, And then we find that the desire can gradually be got rid of. So the first such paradigm in Bhagavad Gita is the concept of Yajna, which we were studying in the last class. When we do action with the idea of Yajna, that all the actions are nothing but Yajna, it's like a sacrifice. It's not the limited fire sacrifice, the sacrifice in a much more encompassing sense in a much more enlarged sense. So in that, uh, with that attitude when I'm doing action, that can entail in liberation. So again, just let us read that sloka and we will have a very quick recapitulation before we proceed to the next sloka. This karma karmana anyatra lokoyam karma vandhana tat artham karma konteya mukta Sangha Samachara. so the world is bound by actions other than those performed for the sake of yagya karma anyatra any actions which are done uh, which are done other than that idea of yagya anyatra means apart from that results in the bondage loko ayam karma bandhana so if you are doing the actions with the idea that i do some action i am it is me who i am going to enjoy the result first of all it is a wrong notion it is a uh, it is an idea which doesn't have any factual any uh, factual uh, uh, any facts behind it it's a pure mental illusion that I am neither the doer of any action nor I am the enjoyer of any action. Even in the modern psychology, they will explain you very nicely. So if that's the case, that doing the action with the idea that I am doing, I am enjoying the result is in no way going to give me any fulfillment. It is going to bind me more and more. It will take me spirally downwards. But if I do it with a sense of yagya. Tat artham karma but if you do the actions with that idea of yagya, then mukta sangha samachara. That alone, that yagya alone, when which is devoid of attachment, if you do that, can enter in your liberation. So perform action for yagya alone, devoid of attachment. That's mukta sangha means devoid of attachment. So to get rid of attachment the idea of yagya has to be brought into picture. So what is the idea of yagya? That here in this world everything is interdependent. So as we've told that generally yagya means the fire sacrifice where I'm offering some oblations to the divine with the expectation the divine that the god will be bestowing boon on us, blessings on us. It will Whatever we desire for, he will be, or God will be giving us. That's the basic concept of yajna. And by offering oblations, you're giving something to get something in return. So we will find this limited idea of yajna, even in the Vedas, have gradually become more all encompassing. In Shatapatha Brahmana, this idea of yajna, which Bhagavad Gita has actually taken, adapted from that Shatapatha Brahmana, what is that? The entire universe, constantly this yajna is going on. It is everywhere it is give and take. Nothing can stand apart as an existence being totally cut off from the entire existence. Everything is constantly intermingling. As we say that if you go and stand in front of the mirror, what you see is the entire universe. Because all the matters, the elements with which your body is made. Nothing has been produced on this earth. This is nowadays the common term we use that we are all star dust. Very interesting. That even uh, in the the Vedic, in the Indian language, one of the forms of the Divine Mother is called Tara. Tara. Tarama. So this, and Tara means star. So when you say that, that we are all the, This the sons, the daughters of matara. That's what we say. It actually indicates the same thing that we are all the the, what you we are all her the sun, the daughters of the star. We are all stardust. Because not a single matter, this carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, with whatever your body is made up. Ultimately, if you break it, if you take the Annamaya kosha, leave out the mind, in all the levels we will find. Even in Annamaya Kosha, Pranamaya Kosha, everywhere we will find that nothing is something which I can say it is mine, it is just mine and mine alone. It is just the universe. We are just like a whirlpool. The entire universe is like a flow. This From this flow, certain amount of matter is getting entrapped in the whirlpool and it goes on revolving for some time, at last to be released and the whirlpool goes on moving, taking up new matter, releasing new matter. You have seen if in the reverse sometimes these whirlpools are there so these whirlpools go on taking new matter and just go on releasing the new matter and that's how this our entire existence is we are like the small whirlpool in this flow of the universe so nothing is something segregated separate from the entire universe so it is a cost, cost, constantly this give and take is going on so then uh, that uh, this is the idea which Gita takes. There's the idea that when you're doing an action, that do it with a sense of Yagya. That I cannot simply take and uh, just, uh, without giving anything back, I just sustain myself. That is something carcinogenic. It is like the cancer cells. The cancer cells do that. They take the nutrients through the blood from this body, whatever you're taking, they're taking, like other cells they're taking. The all other cells, they have a particular rate of growth. They can also grow very fast, but they won't do. They always maintain the balance with the entire body. But this cancerous cell somehow, they become extremely gluttonous. They take the food and they start multiplying beyond the rate with which the body is supposed to multiply, all other cells are supposed to multiply. And that speaks of that growth, the tumorous growth. The, the cells won't listen to the feedback from the body that don't grow at that fast pace. It won't listen. It just simply goes on grabbing at last. It causes the death of the body. And with that, the cancer cells also die. They cannot live without the body. So it results in your uh, degeneration. It results in... M- the person's own degeneration also so that's the thing which happens when we try to grab so here bhagavan will be saying that in the next sloka that idea of the sahayagya that when the creation was made god created the world along with the along with yagya so that's the idea which will be spoken of in the next sloka so let's just this ninth sloka, we were discussing quite elaborately in the last class. The idea is that we have to do all the actions with Yajna. Now in the succeeding slokas, the idea of Yajna will be elaborated. Let us go along with the slokas to understand in details the idea of Yajna. That's the next sloka is Sahayagya. The tenth sloka. Sahayagya praja srishtva purovacha anena prasavishwadhyam esha vo Kamadhu. so what it is speaking sah yagya along with yagya praja this all the created beings were created along with the idea of yagya concept of yagya who did it purovacha prajapati the brahma he is called the prajapati why is prajapati because he is the father the creator of this entire universe prajapati the father of praja we are the praja all the beings are praja those who take birth are all praja means the word these words are very uh, what you say that etymologically very significant That's anything which is Jayati, which is being born is praja so this praja the one who is the father of all the praja is the Prajapati means the Brahma. the idea is in basic uh, the concept is that it is not that from matter consciousness has evolved. it is not it is not true. It is a, uh, the ultimate reality is the consciousness which finds expression as the cosmic mind. The mind is not consciousness. the mind appears to be conscious because the conscious it is activated by the conscious principle. The moment the mind comes in association with the consciousness, it gets activated. Just the way the hard disk of your computer by itself cannot do anything. It is just like an inert matter. If anyone who doesn't know that how the computer works sees that this hard disk, you will think it is just like a dead log wood, nothing else. There's a way the dead log wood also appears to have some networks. You will find the bark gets dried It will having some network. You will look at the heart with this integrated circuit. It also will appear to an ignorant person as a dead log wood. The moment the electricity passes through it, the bias voltage, and immediately the world of virtual reality pops up through that hard disk. The hard disk by itself is something inert. Similarly, the mind, Vedanta says, the mind is not consciousness. The mind is something inert. When the consciousness comes in association with the mind, the mind appears to be illumined. The example which we can give is, in the full moon night, we feel the earth is being illumined by the moon. The moon appears to be luminous, the earth is being illumined by the moon. But the fact is, the the moon is actually being illumined by the sun, which we are not seeing. It's the sun which has illumined the moon, the moon in turn is illuminating the earth. So the way I think the moon to be illumined, the same way ignorantly we think the mind to be illumined. Behind the mind the consciousness is there like the sun which is illuminating the mind which in turn is illuminating our body as well as the external world. So when the mind comes in association with the consciousness, now in Vedanta they say that mind is not something apart from consciousness. It is something which is the con- the consciousness itself is appearing as the mind and then the consciousness comes in association with the mind to project this universe. So it is all mental. You will find that in our uh, mythology the, all these stories actually speak of that truth. Sometimes to understand this truth in a very abstract way is difficult. So that's why all these mythologies has came into picture to explain the this abstract truth through some personification. That what they say we'll find that even that we all read, we all know that in the Hindu mythology what they say that the Vishnu is lying in the Sheshanaga. He's just sleeping. He's as if in a deep sleep in the ocean, in the ocean of nectar, he is sleeping. And you will find in all these pictures, you will find from his navel a lotus has came up, and in that lotus, Brahma is sitting. That's you have seen the where this Brahma is sitting in the lotus which has been projected from the navel of Vishnu. These all are very, very uh, significant. What it says that. This ocean of milk, ocean of nectar, that speaks of that non-dual conscious principle in which the first that Vishnu speaks of the causal state of the mind. When you are sleeping, it's not that your mind is totally vacant. The mind has everything in the potential form. When you're sleeping, all the concepts, the notions are there. So Vishnu represents that causal state of your mind, which has came out from that ocean itself, the ocean of consciousness. And from the causal state of the Vishnu, from his navel, just the way we are connected with the umbilical cord to our mother before we are born. Here also from the navel, it is like the umbilical cord with which Brahma is projecting out. Brahma is the mind, the cosmic mind. What Brahma is doing? is not really creating. He's, he's the creator of this entire universe, but how he's creating? Not like some trade person, trader that he is just using some material to create the world. What he's doing? He's just you will find that all the pictures of Brahma. He's just in deep meditation. He's meditating. He's sitting and meditating. That what it speaks of? It is his thoughts. It is his thoughts which has created this universe. This universe is the thought of Brahma. So consciousness finds expression as thought that finds expression as this creation. You may say this <clears throat> solid, solid matter which I am saying, it is just thought. Yes, that's very interesting. Even in the modern science, they say it is almost it is almost impossible to find out what matter is, you cannot find out. <clears throat> this hard table, I think it is a, made of hard log wood. Now, if we all have studied this common basic science, after all, whatever it may be, at last I can reduce it to an atom. Is, is there are a lot of atoms which is making this table. And these atoms, one of those atom I take. What the science, the basic science will say that is that the nucleus is there around which the electrons are moving, the subatomic particles, the electrons are moving, very interesting. Now these electrons are moving around the nucleus. Now, what is the size of the nucleus is very small and how close to that ele- this nucleus the electrons are moving? They give an example that most of the place is space and space alone, but how much space? If you take a football to be the nucleus placed in the center of a football ground, And now you consider one person is just uh, running across the stadium. In the morning, he went to have some uh, exercise. So the stadium is empty, no one is there. So he plans to just run around the stadium. And the one ball is just lying in the center of the ground and he's simply running on the periphery on the periphery of the stadium. So that's what the atom is. The electron is just like that person who is moving around. Most of the place is space. So this each and every structure is like that. The most of the place is space. Then why do we realize it as a hard solid thing? This is a very basic way we are explaining. Actually the science is quite complicated to explain it with, with, from the layman's point of view. Now just let us try to understand that why we see it as solid. It is a limitation of our senses. To give the, uh, to give an idea of the limitation of the sensor when you see the fan is revolving do you see the blades you don't see the blades they say that the eye has the re, uh, kind of this, the retention of the, the, the eye has the, 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 the eye retains its image which it sees the retention power of the eye means what I see just now the next moment when I'm seeing something else what I have seen the previous moment that is retained actually because of this retention power of the eye, anything you are seeing in the TV becomes like a picture. Otherwise there is no picture, it is simply dots. Dots are coming at a very fast rate. One dot is coming, the other is going. To understand what you are seeing in the picture, what you're seeing in the TV screen, it is something like this, which we have done as an experiment in the school. What's the experiment? That you take a paper, one side of the paper, you draw a bird. On the other side, on the opposite side of the paper, you draw a cage. Now this paper, it's a bit hard paper. So from the bottom, you fix it with a stick so that when you rotate, the page also goes on flipping. So you just do it very fast. You will see the bird in the cage. What is happening? One moment you're seeing the bird, next moment you're seeing the cage as you're flipping it around. But as the eye retains the bird, when you are seeing the cage, because I has the retention capacity for some milliseconds, it's still uh, retains what it has seen in the previous moment. So as it is retaining, it is seeing the bird in the cage. Is it a fact? No. So same thing happens when the fan is not moving. I see, I can clearly see the blades, but when it starts revolving, I see it as a disc. I don't see the blades because the eye is retaining. What I see this moment, it has gone. The next blade has come and these two overlap. Now we will understand, even in our perception, it is a limitation of the senses, which is making us feel everything, sorry, why? The electrons are moving at a tremendous fast pace. The world is, nothing is static. Everything is in motion. That's the idea behind the Shiva's Ritta. Everything is in tremendous motion. Because of the limitation of the senses, we feel everything is okay, static. In The Shiva's Tandamanitta, one thing is very interesting. You will find that Shiva is dan- dan- dancing at a very fast pace. But if you look at his face, it is tranquil. And his hand is having vara and abhaya mudra. Vara means that that nothing to be for, but, uh, there is no nothing to be afraid of abhaya. And vara is giving, he is giving blessing. That though he is in tremendous motion. He is somehow having the, the, that apparent to the appearances that he's very calm. And within that motion, the, the, somehow this creation is sustained. That motion is, in spite of the fact it is a tremendous motion, it is not chaotic. It gives a type of that uh, sustenance that the earth is revolving at a, such a high speed across the sun, we all know. Do you feel it? When I'm in a train, I know I can experience the speed. At a much faster speed, we are every day constantly revolving. Do you feel it? No. We build a house on the solid structure of this earth saying that my house has a very strong foundation. But you will find that the earth is itself not static. Constantly the tectonic movements are going on. The Himalaya mountain is the product of the tectonic movement. The two plates have collided and still it's colliding resulting in that upsurge, which is that Himalaya is still growing. It is the two these plates which has collided the thing which was ocean that's why in the Himalayas you will find fossils of the ocean This all the ocean creatures fossils is in the Himalayas which shows that it was actually on the reef, in the ocean bed which has came up as these mountains so what it speaks of that the, the I think that I have created the house in a strong foundation but the foundation itself is on these earth plates which are constantly motion. So everything is in motion which apparently gives the idea of calmness, tranquility like the Shiva's face who is in tremendous dance. Let's see all these mythological characters actually speaks of the entire creation. So what it speaks of? Tremendous motion, in that motion constant give and take is going on, everything is changing. But through that change, somehow, as it is not chaotic, there is a minute rhythm behind it, which is sustaining the universe. So constantly this flux is going on and through this flux and this, this ap- apparent sustenance is created and that speaks of creation. The, see, you just you take an atom bomb. When it explodes, it speaks of tremendous energy, the release of tremendous energy, but does it produce anything? No, it destroys everything. But that same nuclear power in a controlled fission, when you're using the same nuclear power in a controlled fission in the nuclear reactor, through that I can generate electricity, through that I can do many productive things which can help us, benefit, benefit us. What it speaks of? That the expression of energy, if it is chaotic, it results in destruction. But the same energy, when I can do it in a controlled way, then it can result in something which is productive, which can sustain us. So this, the tremendous dance of Shiva, which is going on, the dance of Shiva is in the imagination of Brahma's mind. It really is, it appears to be tremendous manifestation of energy, but behind that, some rhythm is there. And that rhythm speaks of Yagya, the constant give and take, that nothing is there for its own sake. It is constantly this interaction is going on. So you know to yourself to be just a part of that flux, which is going on. You're getting something, but you have to give back in return without any sense of me and mine. So this speaks of in the modern biological uh, term, it speaks of symbiosis. That the ultimate reality is the OM, which is the Vachak of ultimate reality. It finds expression as rim, The rim is the vachak of Shakti and that rim is not chaotic. It finds the expression as rhythm. This rhythm speaks of laws, rhythm. So there is some law behind that uh, rhythm, behind that expression of energy. Otherwise it would have been, it would have resulted in destruction. So that law, which is behind the expression of energy is the rhythm. The word rhythm in English has become rhythm from rhythm, the word English, you will find etymologically, these words are so interconnected. The rhythm is rhythm. So in the physical world, we find expression of the rhythm as all those laws, the gravitational laws, the electromagnetic laws, but in our moral world, there it finds expression as these do's and do's, as these moral things. We sometimes think that these are all man-made that we should help others. We should be compassionate towards others. Sometimes uh, the young man thinks all these are bogus. I have earned by my own uh, effort. It is I who will enjoy the world. What is the, what is harm in selfishness? Selfishness is good, but that is beyond the law of nature. You cannot simply break the law, any law. If you can break a law, it is no more a law. Law means that which cannot be broken. Just the way you cannot break the law of gravitation, can you break? Just as you think I don't believe in gravitation, so let me jump from the top of the Dandenong Hills, and I will fly because I don't believe in gravitation. Are you going to fly? Whether you believe in it or not, you are going to fall and just simply crash and die. Whether it is, uh, yeah, whether you believe or not, it is not a factor. Similarly, law is a law. Even the moral laws are the law. The creation has been created with the idea of synergy, with the idea of symbiosis, where all the creatures are supposed to cooperate if they want to flourish. If you follow that law, then you also flourish as per your worldly existence is concerned and also in the spiritual sense. Both Abhudaya and Nisresa can be can go hand in hand. Nisresa means your own liberation. Abhudaya means... A, Welfare of the entire society, both can go hand in hand if you are following the rhythm. So, this synergy is the thing. The synergy, what is synergy? Th- throughout the universe, as per the our biological world is concerned, there is no, even in what to speak of biological, even any occurrences in the world, wherever we find two things are combining, it doesn't follow the mathematics. In mathematics, two plus two is four. But just say a rope can. Uh, that uh, hold a load it can have a stretch if you stretch it it can hold a load of say two kg two kilo it can hold beyond that if you put some load it will snap so now i take a similar rope now that also can hold two kg only if you just hang something on it beyond two kg it will snap so now i intertwine those two ropes so mathematics will say now this rope is suppose is can hold 4 kg. But it has always been found now it can hold 5, 6, 7, 8 kg. So this, what it says that 2 plus 2 is not 4. So the definition of synergy is that when the sum of all the parts is greater than the individual parts. So that's how the world is made in the what, what you say in mathematics is not the thing which really finds expression through this universe. So the synergy, whether, whenever the two parts are combining, the sum of those parts is always greater than those individual parts. The output is greater than the input. So this is observable in every aspect of life. So these two elephants can pull three times more weight than one. So everybody will find this thing. So this speaks of the law. If I cooperate, even in the present world, that's the thing, that those who cooperate, where the teamwork is better, that the output is better, much better. It's not just the addition of our individual talents. It is something much, much greater than that. So that's the thing with that idea that I am just doing my part for the, welfare of the collective. It is not just for the individual. I will get the, my benefit. But that benefit is just to sustain me, not to simply go on uh, hoarding, not to hoard, just for my own sustenance. These ideas can be understood with the help of some real happenings, incidences in the lives. Swami In the life of Swami Vivekananda, I will just give an example, that idea that when he came back from the West, one of his, uh, that uh, disciple he was actually a stenographer. In those days, the the, the electronic media was not there. So once, when he was, Swami Vivekananda was in the West, now he was an inspired person. So whenever he had to talk, he has to give lecture, there was no preparation, whatever, just he will be uh, in some exalted mood, whatever came to his mind, he will speak. It was like, it was more like musings, not prepared lecture. And that used to create a wonderful effect among the audience. And in a short time, they realized that we will be missing everything. What is speaking, it's really uplifting us. But if it is not recorded, what a big treasure the world will be losing. So they were, this small group of devotees, they were in search of a stenographer. And at last they got this Gudwin, he was appointed as a stenographer of Swami Vivekananda so that he can take the shorthand notes of Swami Vivekananda's lectures. All those were extempores. But in the process of taking notes of Swami Vivekananda's lectures, this Gudwin also got highly influenced by those ideas. Because, so he, was, he came as a professional stenographer but he became a devotee. So he became so devoted when Swami Vivekananda was returning to India after his work in the West, he was returning back. Goodwin decided just to come with Swamiji. So he forgot his profession and all. So he's just decided to come with Swamiji and serve him. When he came to India, he and Swami Vivekananda was very ill, sick that time. He has started he started developing a lot of ailments. And this Goodwin would do all the personal service. So even from uh, this untwining his, the lace of his shoe, everything he will do. So it was something, a marvelous thing to see that how dedicatedly he's working. And one day, one of the Western devotees dis- suddenly discovered that Goodwin gets, gets some remuneration, some monthly remuneration from Swami Vivekananda. Swamiji remunerates him, gives something, it's not exactly salary, but some small amount he gets immediately there was a gossip that, oh, he's not a devotee after all. He's a paid worker. He's just paid for it, whatever he's doing. And this word at last uh, came to Goodwin himself. The Goodwin also came to hear that what this gossip is going around. And what he reacted is something wonderful. What he said is something very interesting. He told, yes, it's true that Swamiji do remunerate me. He's a kind person. He knows. That when I left everything and came with him, my old mother is there in London, still there. And no one is there to look after her. For her care, he do give me some money. And I also accept that, He has to send it to her, that money. So I do accept that money, which he gives me. And I do send it for my mother. For my mother's sustenance, I do need that money. After saying that, he says, But but no one should think that I serve Swamiji because of that money. I need that money because I have my mother to take care of. I do need that money. But the work which I do is just the output of my heart. I really love him. I do it from the bottom of my heart. It is not from the sense of bargaining that he gives my money. It is no mercenary attitude. I do it from the bottom of my heart as a service because i love him i've dedicated my life to him, life to him so this is the basic approach of karma yoga that many may say that after all i am going to my work i am paid for it where can be the idea of karma yoga be there after all i am getting a salary for it but the idea is that yes I, I have to have a salary because i have to sustain myself i have a family it has to be sustained But let there not be any sense of mercenary sense that that I I am working just because of the money. My work is a big opportunity. There are so many people who have more talent than me. Let us be quite humble. That I have got a good job. That doesn't mean I am the most talented person. There are some other talented person. They have as good talents as me or even more talent than me. But I got that opportunity. I am the humble soul to accept that somehow the Daiva, there is some aspect which is not in my hand. It is a collective aspect that has enabled me to get this job. It is an opportunity. Now it has opened up a scope for me to serve the humanity. I get something. but. I am not mercenary, that I don't calculate that how much I get for that only That's much of work I give. The basic concept, of course, is that that you are paid for your hours. But that makes us highly mercenary. I have seen some workers. We all have seen that work is a passion for them. They do get the money, but they work not for the money. Just to work, to see something done nicely, they are extremely happy. They do get the money for it. But they're not equating that way. And then that becomes karma yoga. So you will find that the self respect is the biggest thing which we can get from that type of work. Most of us have no self respect. If you just think yourself as a mercenary, that I do what I'm paid for, it makes you just like a shopkeeper, nothing else. But the moment you start feeling that I work out of love, for the humanity, for the entire creation. Whatever comes is okay that I need for my sustenance, but it has—it it is not just for that money. Actually, it is an opportunity for me. It has given a wonderful opportunity. So many have, got, have do not to get that opportunity, I got it. It has opened up a scope for me to serve others. And then your self-respect increases. No one can give respect. We, we all always try to Get respect from others. know it for certain. in this world you can never get respect unless you have self-respect. When you really feel that you are worth living, that you have a self-respect, others will spontaneously start respecting you. You don't have to ask others that respect me. You won't have to. The more your self you will find in the life of Ramakrishna, they say that his father, when he used to go for a dip in the village pond he had to he was in life what has had to leave his own village the previous village, the gram, because the zamindar there was extremely cruel he wanted him as a to as a false witness for which he never agreed so he took away all his property he was a almost a destitute he came and then settled in kamarpukur but he was a man of self-respect, that he knew that I never deviate from truth. I may have no wealth, nothing. And that created such a, what do you say, that a vibe with him, that when he used to go and take a dip in the pond, it's written in the, their life that others will wait. Let him just have a dip and come back. Then only we will go. No one will share the pond along with him. So what it speaks of, that when you really, that he has nothing, he has no wealth. Is almost a destitute, but that self-respect that has created uh, that is a tremendous, uh, what you say, a personality, which others also are bound to bow down before it. So when we can also create that way, that self-respect, that's what I am doing. It has nothing to do with what I get. I do it out as a pour of my heart. It is just an outpour of my heart, love. God has given me the opportunity all the good feelings which I have it is He's the love, compassion, it's through me He's working. I am just doing I'm just doing my part. I'm just a small I'm just a small clog in the whole chain and what work I have to do I'm just doing and there it's over. that gives a tremendous self-worth and that's the idea of the Sahayagya. this world is constantly in a flux you as such cannot hold on to anything so whatever you are getting give it back whatever the things you are getting for your sustenance whatever is required of course you have the right to keep it but rest you give your energy your resource your labor everything as an expression of your love for the divine so that's the idea of yagya so with that idea the creator Brahma, when he was mentally projecting this universe, he has projected along with that idea of yankya. So entire creation is sustained by that. Swami Vivekananda in one of the lectures, in those days when the Darwin's theory of evolution was interpreted in a wrong way. That's struggle for existence, survival of the fittest. the Variation is in the creation is something which is there if A father has five children, all the five won't be same. There will be variations. The variety is the law of nature. And then there will be struggle for existence. All all are not equally equipped to, to fight with the nature. And then of them, those who are the fittest, they alone will survive. From that, the philosophy developed that if survival of the fittest is the law, And if all are not well equipped to struggle in the same way why not we accelerate the process of evolution by getting rid of those who are not fit to survive so now among the humanity some started thinking that they are the the only one who are fit to survive you have to get rid of other so this mass extinction in the second world war is the product of the wrong understanding of The Charles Darwin theory. When Swami Vivekananda was going throughout the west, he sensed that. He was a prophet. He sensed that. When all were speaking of the great, what is this, that the 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 western culture, all were praising the western culture, see how affluent it is, how developed it is. Swami Vivekananda was saying something interesting. He was saying, I see the entire Europe is sitting on the tip of a volcano just to burst any moment. Always surprised, no one understood. Just it is in 1899, in another few decades, two devastating world war came. And he was going through the Europe and he found that how this idea of supremacy came, that we are the supreme race. We have the right to colonialize. We have the right to exploit others, exterminate others. That will accelerate the process of evolution. Hitler is the one who is considered as the villain of this modern history, but he's not something who, is, again, is a separate person, just a simple personality. He's a product of this type of thought, which the Nietzsche's philosophy we find that the one who so said that we have nothing to do with God. If God was there, he is dead. God is dead. A very famous statement of Nietzsche that God is dead. And from him, this idea came that is evolution. He has something to do with history. You see the Greeks, the Greek, the, the, where the merciless people, the entire Greek culture, they flourished by exterminating others. They were exploiting, just see. If you see the history, you will find that evolution have worked. So the one who is fit to exist, he has the right to exterminate other, to enhance the, what do you say, the development, of the, uh, the so-called uh, the entire uh, this, uh, this, uh, uh, culture or the species, it is concerned, it is just for the development of that. Swami Vivekananda just, if you read Swami through the lines, he, will, he found that all these reasonings he was quite aware of, that's in one of the lectures in the very first in Chicago itself, he's saying a very interesting thing. If what you say is correct, that it is just by the showing your power and prosperity and exterminating others, you go to the top. If that is true, then where is the Greek culture? Where is the Roman culture? They have all, they, they are no more, they have become extinct. Where the Romans used to rule, there you will find the cobwebs are waving the webs. That's what Swamiji is saying. It is all mass of ruins. If they were the most evolved race, where are they? Who remains? The Jesus who has been crucified, he remains. The one who was crucified, he has entered into the heart of the entire human being. What it speaks of? Sahayagya. The one who thought my life is for all. I am the son of God here to deliver my life as a sacrifice. He lives. He lives in the heart of the man. How many Roman Empire's name you know? Those who were in their might. How many of them are really, they are just in the books of the history. Are they in your hearts? No. But again, it speaks of sahayagya. That's why Swami told I see the entire Europe sitting on the peak of a, on the epic of a this volcano. Anytime it is going to just simply burst because of the wrong understanding of the entire uh, this civilization, this evolution never has happened because of competition. Actually, Darwin also never meant it. He when he told that survival of the fittest. By fittest, he meant that among the various species, those who cooperate with each other, they have the power to evolve. Others, those who are not cooperating, they get exterminated. That idea was there, people never understood. They represent, they misrepresented it. That's why Swami Vivekananda in a very simple way, actually spoke of that idea of evolution. He told, if you see anywhere evolution is happening, because of competition, because of exterminating others, knowing for certain that it is just an accident because of some wrong notion. But the, and it appears to be an evolution, actual evolution has not happened. Actual evolution happens only when there is cooperation. And then he's giving a very simple example, which all can understand what he's saying. Suppose in a theater, a packed theater, some event is going on and suddenly the, even the screen drops and there's an announcement. There's a fire. The theater is on fire. Please move out. And then we find this tremendous chaos. All people are just jostling. They're trying to overtake others to move out of the hall. And there's a huge chaos, stamped. Most of them dies of stampede. Most of them cannot go out because all were trying to go out first. Only a few who were sitting near the exit could manage. Just a few could manage to go out and most uh, dies because of that fire. So would you say those few who came out are the evolved ones? They were just sitting near the exit. Somehow they escaped. Is there any, say, what you say, that uh, criteria to say they're more evolved? And now Swamiji is saying, giving another example. Now suppose the same fire was there and all these people decide to cooperate. Let's in a queue silently go out, what would have happened? Most of them would have came out. The casualties would have been minimum. Will you speak of this as an evolution or the previous competition as an evolution? That has given an appearance of an evolution. There was a huge fight. A few came out, I say they are fit. Is that an evolution? But here we find all cooperated. Let us just don't lose our uh, this uh, equanimity. Silently, let us cooperate with each other. Silently, we form a queue and form, go out. Wouldn't have that resulted in a, this, what is the, a, this abhudaya, a the welfare of all, all would have managed to come out. So this is a simple example is saying it is a cooperation which actually entails in evolution, which is in the modern biology, they have started accepting. Now that this competition is being described in the terms of synergy, these words, 100 years back it was not the symbiosis, that wherever you see synergy, wherever you see symbiosis, there only the evolution happens. And that's the idea, this Sahayagya, if you translate it as symbiosis, as synergy, this sloka becomes vividly clear. That when the creation, when the creator from his mind has created in that thought process, the programming was cooperate, cooperate with each other. Just out, let everything be the outpour of your heart. There's so many faculties God has given me. Why not use it as an opportunity to serve others? And there it ends. Know it for certain. You will prosper, the entire world will prosper. So that's what is being indicated in there that when God, there's a, when Brahma, he created this universe, he created with the idea of Yajna. And he told, what he told? Let you prosper and let this be the milch cow. The idea of milch cow is the kama dhenu. That in our mythology it is mentioned that the, there is a kama dhenu. In the heaven there is a cow that we all want and that the cow should eat less and give more milk as Sri Ramakrishna used to say that the Bamuner Goddi, the Brahmin's cow, the Brahmin is a poor person. So he wants that it that should eat less but give more milk and give more cow dung because in those days cow dung were used as a fuel. So it will eat less, but bamuner would be khabe kam and nadwe. he will give a lot of cow dung. So we also that's all expect that that type of milch cow. Is that type of milch cow there? Kamadhenu, yes, it is there. Those who are following that, the concept of yagya, which is behind the rhythm of the entire creation, those who follow that, for them that Yagya will be like the milch cow. That's what is mentioned. Because two plus two is no more four. Two plus four is eight. That looks like milch cow. It can give you a tremendous amount of output with less input. The the idea of Kamadhoog is very less input, much, much greater. It is not just the summation of all the parts of the inputs. It is much greater than that. That speaks of the milch cow, the Kamadhenu. So this Yagya, can be your kamadhenu it can it speaks of that synergy where the individual parts the summation of the individual parts part is greater than each uh, any of this uh, what is the sum of all the parts is greater than the individual parts that is synergy so that is the kamadhenu that it, efficiency is much much higher the output is much greater than the input and that's possible if we follow the rhythm with which the creation has been made and that is the law which no one can break just the way I cannot break the law of gravitation, I cannot break the law of electromagnetism. I cannot break this law of yagya. So he has created this creation with that idea of yagya, saha yagya And after creating this, Prajapati Bhatti told that go and prosper with this idea of yagya. Let this be your milchka So uh, that's the idea behind this locus. You will find these slokas are wonderful in these few lines. A huge gamut of knowledge is actually encrypted in that. Once we try to understand, if you come out from the limited sense of yagya, that it is just the fire sacrifice, that with the limited sense what happens, we go on exploiting nature, and because of that drought is there, we have exploited the nature for years together, and then the drought comes because, because there is all deforestation, no forest, where the rain will come. And now the drought comes, now the purahids, they, they will prescribe that brings uh, the uh, 10 kilos of ghee and this all this uh, firewood and let us have a yagya because in gita it is mentioned from the yagya comes rain then next cloak will say of that next afternoon. and there will be in india we found that this is a very limited understanding very wrong understanding of the bhagavad gita where i have already uh, exploited the nature i have just overgrazed the land i have just cut off the trees there is no rain and now I'm just doing the fire sacrifice thinking the rain will come from where it will come I have already just uh, broken the try to break the law at the cost and what happens I can never break the law now it is disintegrating me it is destroying me so if you understand the idea of yagya from that all-encompassing idea which has been indicated in the Bhagavad Gita this look has become very clear and you will find how it is just resonating the ideas which we, after doing a lot of mistakes, historical blunders, now we have started understanding. In the science, with the ideas of synergy, with the ideas of symbiosis, we find how it all these ideas are in a tune with the idea of Bhagavad Gita. So with this, we stop our discussion today, we'll continue with the idea of Yagya, which will be following, will be uh, in the few more slokas, it will be continued, this idea of Yagya. So we will continue with the discussion again in the succeeding classes. So with this, we stop our discussion today. Thank you all. Namaskar.